and go tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere go tell it on the mountain that jesus christ is born Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Let's stand to our feet and to worship our Lord this morning. We're reflecting on the joy that we have through Jesus, through Jesus alone. So we're going to lean into that. We're going to sing really joyful songs. So let's sing together. Well, shepherds kept their watching over silent flocks by night Behold throughout the heavens the shoulder of holy light Oh, oh on the mountain over the hills
Hello, fellowship. I have an important announcement today that requires your prayer and participation. As a church body, it's time to nominate new elders to the elder board, as four of our current elders will be completing their terms of service next summer. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of all the congregations of fellowship. We are not a church with elders. We are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. And here is what we're asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Then, if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to make a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. Or, if you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick one of those up in the Worship Center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 19th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate this process. Our desire is to be sensitive and responsive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we would like to thank Rod Easley, Steve Lampkin, Dick Nervig, and Steve Weber for their years of service as elders. They have served the Lord faithfully and diligently during their tenure and have represented you well. When you see them, please thank them personally. Blessings to each of you for your prayers and participation in this phase of the elder nomination process. Thank you. Well, good morning, and in light of that, as uh, Mickey mentioned, I wanted to just identify those of you who currently have served or are serving as an elder um, here in Fayetteville, or you have served as an elder in the past, and so um, go ahead and stand up, and we want to just say thank you to you for your service. Go ahead and stand up. Yeah, thank you so much. As Mickey said, uh, the deadline is actually Monday, December 19th, and we do have hard copies of those um, qualifications out there, and so they do such a great job of serving behind the scenes and praying for the sick 
in providing guidance uh, for our church. And so we're incredibly grateful. As you can see, there's a lot of activity in the room as well. The offering's being passed. And I'm always reminded, even as a child, of just this, this simple idea that when the offering plate is passed, it's a reminder for us to know that God is our provider. And so out of the generosity of him, we can be generous uh, back to his work. And so um, just allow that moment, even if you don't give, um, because maybe you give online, um, allow that moment to be a reminder that God is good and he's been the great provider for you this year. Um, In light of that, um, we get to celebrate something really cool every year called The Gift. And so many of you are always looking for creative ways to give at the end of the year. And that's what The Gift is about. Um, years ago, it created an opportunity for us to address certain needs that were specific to fellowship, and that became very personal for us in Fayetteville. The gift was very helpful in helping us get launched six and a half years ago. Can you believe that? And uh, then last year, we were also um, able to um, use some of the gift money to help with Bentonville as well, and I'm certain some of that money will be used to help them as well. It's also an opportunity for us to take requests that come from partner local organizations and partner global initiatives that we're a part of. And we can come alongside those workers and assist them in specific needs with that gift money. And so as you make your end of the year giving decisions, consider that as a significant option for you. Well, I'm gonna pray for us and ask God to be with us. We've got a great morning plan together in worship. We've got more baptisms to get to celebrate people coming to know Christ, and um, that's one of my favorite things about being together on Sundays. And so let's ask God and His Spirit to be with us this morning. Father, in fact, Your Spirit, Your Holy Spirit resides in us, as we learned in Ephesians. Upon believing that Jesus is our King, He's our Savior, He's resurrected, He died for our sins, upon believing those truths, Acknowledging him as our king, your spirit now is in us. This is your church. And so in the oneness that comes with the gospel, we ask that you would um, give us eyes to see the world as you see it this morning. Help us see you for who you really are in worship. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. together and continue to worship this morning.
Fellowship. We're excited this morning to celebrate uh, through the ordinance of baptism. Victoria, come on down. I want to introduce y'all to my friend, Victoria Albritton. Who's here for Victoria? That's what I thought. Come on down. Hey, if any, yeah, I was going to say, if any of y'all want to come on up on stage, come on down. One more step. There you go. You got it. Yeah. Hey, Victoria, um, she, a few years ago, uh, her journey toward a closer walk with our Lord um, started with a real estate transaction, ironically enough, as she got to know a family that was following Jesus with everything they had, and it was intriguing to her. And so that began a process that involved getting more plugged in, reading her Bible, getting in a Tuesday morning study. We got some Tuesday morning love on the stage, getting in a community group. Um, and then a few weeks ago, uh, the topic of baptism came up here at Fellowship. And Victoria shared with me that she just felt the Lord press on her heart. It's time, it's time to follow me um, by being obedient to believers' baptism. And so, Victoria, is it your testimony before your family of faith and your family uh, that's here this morning that you want to follow Jesus all the days of your life and you're counting on him for eternal life? Yes. Well, then it's my privilege, you're good, to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. My name is David King, and here I go. <laughs> uh, this, sorry, this is my daughter, Lila. Uh, she's pretty precious to me, and uh, she is here today. I told her I wouldn't do this, but uh, my wife, Lisa, and our family is here too. Lila Kate uh, has just always been such an incredible person for the Lord, even at a young age. She understood things that most young kids didn't and at six years old she accepted Christ into her life and her mom and I worked and talked with her pastors met with her and they were amazed at what she understood so at six years old she asked Jesus into her heart she understood that and knew it and then a few years ago she started realizing that she made that decision but that she was not walking and growing in her faith and being a disciple for Jesus. So the last few years, she has made that decision. We see that in her life every day. We see her fruits, um, and so we know where her heart is. So she is here today in front of all of you and her family to just let you know that she's made that decision. She wants to walk with the Lord daily, grow with the Lord daily, and give her life to Jesus to make a difference in this world. So. Uh, we are here this morning to baptize her before all of you. And so, Lila, with what I just said, would you like to give your testimony this morning and tell everyone here that you are here, you understand that Jesus saved you, and he raised from the dead, and he nailed your sins to the cross, and you would like to be baptized this morning to show them. Absolutely. So, it is my pleasure this morning to baptize my daughter and my sister in Christ um, and we just are so thankful for her so in the name of the Father Son and the Spirit I baptize you my sweet sweet daughter in the name of Jesus Gracious, I'm gonna need a second, man. Y'all can have a seat. Man, isn't God good? Last week, we, we celebrated with, uh, I know most of you probably don't come to both services, and so unfortunately, sometimes, uh, well, here at Fellowship, we don't baptize people twice. Um, so unfortunately, sometimes you miss the baptisms. Um, last week, we had five baptisms. This week, we're having four. Uh, we have two in the next service as well. God's moving. Um, it's really cool to see. Um, he's also moving across 
the world, not just in this room and in our city, but across the world. And so this, this week, every, every week we've been uh, lighting different candles. Uh, and this week we're gonna light the candle of joy. And if you all remember uh, Kyle and Elise McCarthy, we sent them off earlier this year and they're currently serving as missionaries in Tokyo, Japan. They're gonna join us via video this week to light the candle of joy. So if you would, let's turn your attention to the video. Merry Christmas Fellowship. We're here at our church in Tokyo, Japan, where we've been for about nine months, and we are currently learning Japanese, and so we ask any of you that know Japanese to please forgive us as we read Psalm 126 together. <laughs> 私たちの知ったは喜びの叫びで満たされたその時諸国の人々は言った主は彼らのために追いなることをなさった主が私たちのために追いなることをなさったので私たちは喜んだ主よ願う野流れのように私たちをもと通りにしてください。涙とともに種をまくものは喜び叫びながら刈り取る。種入れを抱え泣きながら出ていくものは束を抱え喜び叫びながら帰ってくる。we light this candle because, like God's people centuries ago, we know that God has come in Christ and that Christ will come again. We rejoice in God's work in history and in the future to come. And together we say, Come, come Lord Jesus, Jesus come. come. Well, I don't know how I'm supposed to follow all that. Um, I'm trying to gather myself because they're two of my best friends in the whole world and they're uh, on the other side of the world. So. Um, I'm Garland. Good morning. This is a really cool morning um, to be here with you guys. Um, uh, it's, it's a privilege to be one of your pastors. And so uh, we're here in the middle of Advent. Uh, we get to celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And if you're, if you're like me, then Christmas oftentimes is a time of of tradition where we, you know, we watch the same movies every year and we sing the same songs every year, even though it's music we never listen to any other, any other time of the year. We sing these same songs every year. We have certain traditions that our family does every year. And uh, you don't really realize that something that maybe your family does or you've done for most of your life might be odd or strange till you, till you experience a different family. And then you might realize some of the traditions that you hold really dear Maybe not everybody does. Let me give you an example. I want to see a little interaction here. Help me know who's in the room. I'll give you one of our traditions. At my mom's house for Christmas, we would always do a happy birthday Jesus cake and light the cake and sing happy birthday to Jesus, which I always thought was a little strange. Um, how many of you do this? That's what I thought. Very few. Okay, almost no one. All right, now, just, just so I can see who's in the room here with me, um, interact with me. There's other traditions that I did not even know existed till I got a little bit older, and I'll be honest, I don't know what's going on with them. So just by show of hands, how many of you participate in this, the elf on a shelf situation, okay? I'm gonna need somebody to explain it, and I'm also just being perfectly honest, like, this little thing is creepy, all right? Like, when I see that, like, if I walked into my house and that was up on the mantle, that would, that would scare me a little bit, like the whole thing's a little weird. I need somebody to explain what it means and what it is, especially when you see them stacked like that in a box. I find that kind of weird. Here's one that I did not even know existed until recently. I'm curious if anyone in here uh, participates in the Christmas pickle tradition, anyone? Okay, I don't know what the heck's going on with the Christmas pickle, and that thing's way creepy. Like, look at that thing. Uh, I have no idea what's going on with the Christmas pickle. So if you're, if you're an elf on the shelf or Christmas pickle person, come find me afterwards, just explain it, because it, it's not self-explanatory, all right? Like, I don't get it when I see that on uh, the screen. I don't get what's going on there. Um, so we're going to have a new one this year. It's called Christmas with Clark. It's going to be a new tradition that we're going to be celebrating this year. So come join us. Um, he, by the way, he, 
I keep calling it Christmas with Clark. I've been calling it that for months now, and he hates it. And so now I'm going all in on it, all right? Here's your Christmas uh, Eve and Christmas morning announcement, all right? Is he in here? Did you leave, Clark? He'll, he'll see it next service. Uh, oh, there he is. He's in the back. Yeah, he's real happy about this right now. Um, Christmas Eve, there's your times, 2, 3.30, and 5. If you hear a different, see different, just these are your times, all right? This is when we're going to be here doing services, all right, 2, 3.30, and 5. Then on Christmas morning, uh, you know, however you want to accomplish this, whether before, presents, after presents, however you want to do it, uh, come join us with jammies, bring your family, uh, come up, I call them jammies, I'm 37, still call them jammies, uh, come together and celebrate Christmas morning uh, with Clark and Isaiah will be uh, up here as well leading, and uh, we'll love to light the Christmas, the Christ candle on Christmas Eve and celebrate uh, Christmas morning. So here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, uh, what I'd like to do is as we continue in our Advent series, we've looked at uh, hope and then peace. This is the joy morning. And I want to look at one half of one verse. That's it. One half of one verse. It's a famous verse. Uh, It's a well-known verse. Maybe if you haven't even spent that much time in the church, you've probably seen this verse or heard it quoted before. Here's the verse. And I'm going to read it. And unfortunately, when when we see a verse like this, especially if you're familiar, like if you've kind of grown up in the church or been around the church, the, the profoundness, the wonder of such a statement can sometimes kind of blow right over our heads because of familiarity. Let me read it. The Word, the one who was there at the beginning, the agent of creation, became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. This might be, in just a short phrase, one of the most profound statements that humans have ever made. I mean, think about it. We could, we could, we could pause Christmas right now, the whole rest of the talk, we could just read it and read it again and reflect on it and be done. Because this summarizes the story of the incarnation right here. This is a dramatic change from any other religious system or philosophical system Nothing else is like this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this statement has significant implications. A simple, short statement, and yet its implications are broad and sweeping. We know statements like this. They're statements that have implications. Short, four words, will you marry me? And regardless of the answer, it has implications, does it not? Here's another short, simple statement that has pretty profound implications. You are being audited. You know what that means. It comes with some implications for you, and for, me, for you or for me if you've ever gone through it. Um, if you're in a relationship, you know these short four words mean something, right? We need to talk. It's never good. Um, if you hear that, just run. Maybe you can save yourself a few more days, okay? We know that simple statements can sometimes be loaded with implications, and we see that in our short half of one passage this morning, that the words might have, those words have changed the, transformed the world. So we're in the joy morning of our Advent series. We're gonna look at the implications of the incarnation with just this short little verse. Then we're gonna ask, what does this have to do with joy uh, as we get to the end? And I'm gonna give us, uh, we could give a lot of implications. We could spend all day processing this. I've tried, to, I've tried to distill it down to five just for our purposes this morning. They're gonna be on the screen many times, so if you're taking notes, they'll come up again. Don't freak out when I change the slide in a minute, okay? You don't write them all down now. Here's our five implications that we're gonna look at this morning, then we're gonna ask, what does that have to do with joy? Simple, right? You ready? Let's get to work. Here we go. Uh, the first one is this. If John 1.14 is true, then that means that God isn't a million miles away. You may, not, you may not understand why that's such a big deal. When we read the Gospel of John, in fact, when we read much of our New Testament, there's two backgrounds that it's interacting with. One background is the Jewish background. And there's a lot of implications we read John 1.14 from a Jewish perspective. There's also the Greco-Roman background that the, uh, that the early church was growing in. And we don't have time to look at both this morning, so we're going to go with the Greco-Roman background real fast, okay? As we read John 1.14, it's written in a culture that has certain ideas and understandings about the way things are in the world. You see, as the Greco-Romans were wrestling with the nature of God or the gods, the pantheon of gods on Mount Olympus, they, find themselves, they found themselves wrestling with what is real, like what is ultimate, what anchors my subjective experience to something grand and something 
broader, and in a way oversimplification. If you're a philosophy major in the room or that was your major in college, I know I'm oversimplifying here. But there's tended to be two ways of looking at what was ultimate or real. In one camp, we'll call them the Stoics, they looked at God or the power of God as, a, as we might say, a, a, a transformative, all-encompassing life force that was kind of in everything, emanating and pulsating life out of it. And it was necessary to live life in such a way to connect with that. There was another camp, we'll call them the Epicureans. They, they came along, and for them, if there was something that was ultimate, if there was a being that was powerful, then that being must be distant. It must be it must be transcendent. It must be wholly out there and really uninvolved in my life. How would I know if he's involved in my life? And this dichotomy is essentially on display as we look at many ways that religions process the nature of God, many philosophies of the way they process the nature of God. In fact, we might distill it into these two ideas. For many religious systems in the world, we see God as powerful, transcendent, the creator, the judge. We use language like that to describe God. And others come along and go, no, 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 God isn't like that. God is near and personal and at hand and imminent. I'll just speak personally for a moment. For much of my life, especially my early years and even my early years following Jesus, when I thought about the God of the Bible, the only thing I thought was largely a God of power, the creator, the king of the universe, the judge, and he sits on high kind of a long way away, and he's given me rules to follow. He expects me to follow them, and hopefully he'll come and he'll bless me at the end. As I got to reflecting on that, that there's not that much difference in that theological understanding than how we understand Santa Claus, if you really think about it. I think for many Christians I talked to, and for myself included, for many years of my early years of following Jesus, when I thought about God, it was basically this, kind of a grandpa in the sky. He's supernatural, he's magical, like that's cool and all. He's really powerful, and he's given humanity rules. He's given me rules, and occasionally he'll come and visit my life, and I sure hope when he does, he brings good things. That's kind of how I live my life. Be a good boy. Hopefully when this being visits, he's pleased with me. And most of the time, I felt like he wasn't, so I was afraid of the other thing when he came to visit. Many Christians I talk to have that similar experience. Now, it's not hard to fathom that if God is a million miles away, if that's our picture of God, then you won't run to him in your pain, and you won't run to him in your brokenness. You won't run to him in your doubt. You won't run to him in your skepticism. You won't run to him when you mess up and when you sin. You'll hide. You'll make decisions in your life as if he is a million miles away. But look at the implication of John 1. See, John 1 starts this way. In the beginning. What's that sound like? You could say it. What's that sound like? Genesis, right? John orients us all the way back to the very first page of the Bible. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. We've now complicated our picture of Genesis 1. He says, whatever you have there, you have the powerful God creating the universe. The word was there with him. He says, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Power. You might be tempted to go see power. That's what I thought. But look at what John says. This is earth-shattering. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. If he's a million miles away, you'll never run to him, but if he's become flesh, in your pain, in your doubt, in your fear, in your anxiety, in your brokenness and in your sin, he's pressed near, and you'll go to him. It's a profound implication. He's not distant. He's not a grandpa in the sky, but he's come near, so near that he could be touched it's our first implication of the incarnation. The second one, what do I mean by that God means to unite heaven and earth? What do I mean by that? I don't know if you've had this experience um, where you watched a movie or you've read a book and you didn't really get it. Like, the thing was over and you're like, I don't really get that. What happened there? And what they have now on YouTube are these, they call them explainer videos. 
And they can come along and explain what's going on in that movie. Or maybe you talk to a friend who loves that author. They helped explain the book for you. That's how, this is how I always feel, by the way, when I go into any art museum. Like, I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on. I'm looking, and people are standing next to me like, you know, and I'm like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't know what you see in this. And they put that little plaque, right, that little plaque next to it. If you have somebody who's like an art person, which I don't know people like that, they go with me to the museum. But they, they, they have this little plaque, and it explains what's going on or tells you the angle the artist is taking or what it means. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay, I still don't really get it. I'm not an art guy, okay? Um, we, we oftentimes, I think when we come to the Bible, we, we read it, and we, I think we kind of think we get the story, but I'd like to maybe suggest for us just real briefly, an explainer video on the big narrative of the Bible. See, when we see words like heaven and earth, I think this is our natural inclination. We think that, okay, heaven is the place where God is. It's up there. That's the good place that you want to go to when you die. And the earth is kind of the bad place down here. And the big story of the Bible, for many of us, is something like this. God's up there in the good place. We're down here in the bad place. Uh, We're all going to die. The hope is that God has plucked out certain people that now we get to go be with him in the good place forever. And that actually perpetuates the narrative that God's a million miles away in his palace somewhere. But what we actually see in the scriptures is something very different. Here's your explainer video. God intends, he means, it's the story all along, to unite heaven and earth, to make that those two would not be separate. Let me give you the first page and the last page. By the way, the culminating part of that story we'll see in John 1.14 The first pages of your Bible say this. God, on the seventh day of creation, we're told he rested. He ain't tired. That's not what's going on here. What does it mean for God to rest in the cosmos that he's made? What, What the author has in mind is that the presence of God, his embodying presence, would come and make residence, take up residence in the creation he's made. He'd come to dwell in the thing that he's created, bringing his beauty and goodness and order to bear in that cosmos. He wants to unite heaven and earth so he comes and settles in and rests in the creation he's made. And he has a plan. Here's the plan. He's created a particular creature called humans, and he wants to work in and through us to take that beauty and wonder of his goodness and bless the whole world through us. That's the plan from the very beginning. You have to let, get you know what the last page of your Bible says? The same idea. Not God is out there trying to rescue people out of the earth. No. That God, we see the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, notice what it says, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice the voice. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is not way up there. No, it's now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. This is the story, Front, first page, last page. Now, what's the story in the middle? How well do humans do at receiving the blessing of God and taking his goodness and beauty out of the rest of the world? How many pages do we make it? Three pages. That's all we get. Instead, humans said, we will define the blessed life. We will define the happy life. We can define the good life on our own terms. And instead of receiving God's blessing, we will take blessing into our own hands. And the story of the Bible is God pressing in to that original plan over and over and over again, even in the midst of human brokenness. He presses in with Abraham he presses in with Moses. He comes to dwell on a burning bush and says, we're going to do something new. One of my favorite places we see this story in the pages of Scripture is as the people of Israel come out of the Exodus, the glory of God settles over a movable tent so that he could show, I'm creating a new people here. We're doing the same story. I'm going to bless you, Israel, and I'm going to bring my presence to bear that you might see my beauty, see my goodness, and that the nations around you would go, wow, who is like Israel and their God? You read your Old Testament? How did Israel do? I mean, it's just page after page after page, largely of them refusing this very same story. So God presses in and he presses all the way in. The culmination of that story is the word becoming flesh 
and making his dwelling among us. We've seen the glory of God. You know what's being translated for us here? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You know what that word is in Greek? It's, this, it's literally, he set up a tent. He tabernacled among us. Can I tell you what this means? God is ruthlessly committed to blessing this world and doing so through humans. You know how he does it now? The church. It's what you're called to be. What does Jesus do as he, hits the, as he hits the ground in his ministry? Everywhere he goes, he's bringing healing and restoration and blessing and goodness and beauty to bear. That's what God is after in this world, bringing beauty and justice and goodness. And he wants to do so through people. It's an amazing story the Bible is telling. And its culmination is God invading this world in his own presence in his son. The first two are really cool. And they're really awesome and they're really positive. Look at number three. Not so much. What John 1 tells us is that this world is worse off than we thought. See, as the word becomes flesh, it enters into this world. How the world responds. Look up a few verses at John 1. Notice what he says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He comes announcing a kingdom. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of sacrifice and service. It's a kingdom where people don't come to be served, but to serve. It's the kingdom where the last or first. It's a different kind of kingdom. You know what the world said? We don't recognize that. That's not the kind of kingdom we want. That's not how we define success and power. Hey, that was true in the first century, and it's true in the 21st. We don't recognize that. He came to his own, the people of Israel, the ones he's promised a tabernacle with, that he's been leading in the wilderness all those generations earlier. But his own didn't receive him. We're going to see as the pages of John's gospel unfold, it leads to a dramatic moment in John 19. Here you have the representative of the Gentile Caesar king mockingly presenting Jesus. Here's your king. They didn't recognize him in the world. And the people of Israel, how do they respond? Not, that is our king, our Messiah. No, 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 no. Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. The incarnation teaches us something it's kind of hard to stomach about us that we really are that selfish. We really are that broken. We really have that thing in us that wants to take the good life and blessing on our own terms and not receive it from anyone else. Then and now. And the fourth one is even more surprising. The incarnation, John 1.14 the backdrop of the verse is that we must get help from the outside. We can't do it from inside of us. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't fix it. And can I tell you something? I'm a Southern American, you know, 21st century person, right? Uh, it's the, the fact that we can't solve it, fix it, that bothers us, doesn't it? That goes against everything you and I have been taught as Americans, if you're an American in the room especially. See, we've been taught that individually, if you work hard enough, if you're resourceful enough, if you try hard enough, you, you can fix it. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can fix it. You can solve it. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You can make the good life for yourself. That's the story of America. And even better, as a collection, as a social group, we've been conditioned to think that if we get the right political leaders in there, if we get the right technology, we can solve the world's problems. We're progressing towards a better future. How are we doing? We got thousands of years at it. Any less selfish? You and I know. Tim Keller reflecting on this. I just, I just thought this was so insightful. He says, Christmas is the most unsentimental realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, hey, cheer up. We all pull together, we can make the world a better place. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say, 
We can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does it agree, though, hear it, with the pessimists who only see a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead. Things really are this bad, and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. That'd be a bad place to end it, wouldn't it? Nevertheless, there is still hope. Before we look at the fifth point, okay, before we go there, uh, there was a story back in the 1970s, uh, it took place in New York, it's a gruesome story, um, where uh, a woman was going home late in the night, early in the morning, and uh, she found, she was in a bad part of town where she lived, and as she went kind of down the alley to her building, um, she was brutally attacked, and as she was uh, brutally assaulted, eventually it ended up taking her life, she's crying out in the alley for someone to come and help, and people here. And as they investigate this crime, the police and the journalists later, what they discover is dozens of people heard her cries. Dozens of people heard. And virtually no one did anything, not even call the police. And one of the people that they, uh, that they interviewed said this. It became kind of the famous line of this event back in the 70s. It became the, 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 the mantra of it. This one uh, gentleman who was asked, uh, why did you do something? He just said this, I didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to get involved. And it's easy to judge this guy, right? Like, how, how could you? But think about it. This is the 70s. New York was dangerous. It, it, was, it was a little darker than it is now. Um, if you go down there, like, who's, you don't know who's down there. You don't know if they got a weapon. You could get hurt. You could get killed. You could get brought into a lengthy trial process. You don't know what's down there. I don't want to get involved. Here's the the news of Christmas, the news of the incarnation. Will the God of the universe, in the mess that we've made, as we cry out in desperation, will he lean in or go, hey, you made your bed, now lie in it? And the story of of Christmas and the story of the Bible is not God saying, I don't want to get involved, but pressing in to rescue. The Lord became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the question I might ask is, how far was God willing to go? How, how in the mud was he willing to get? And the answer is to be born here. Now, don't, don't cute up your manger seed at your house, okay? Don't make it like a little wood crib with, uh, you know, it almost looks cozy. You want to put your kid in it. You got to think food trough, all right? Food trough for animals. I got two dogs. I don't want to put, I wouldn't put my infant in their food trough. That's where Jesus came into the world, a place where sheep and donkeys eat and drink. This is how far God was willing to go to get involved in the brokenness and the mess that we've made of this world in our lives. This is how far I was willing to go. Why here? Because there wasn't room. This ain't Rome. This isn't Alexandria. This isn't Antioch. It's the middle of nowhere, and there wasn't even a room there. Put him in the animal trough. Maybe there's some room out there. That's how far he was willing to go. And as the pages of his story unfold, he's always got a destiny in mind. He keeps talking about it over and over again. How far was he willing to go? This far. It's the story of the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. How far was our God willing to go to do something about our mess? This far. C.S. Lewis in Miracles says this, in the Christian story, God comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. There's just five implications, just five. We could spend the time on a lot more. And I might ask this question as we turn to close. What in the world does this have to do with joy? Is the joy day after all? What's this got to do with joy? And I hope you could answer it really simply. Everything, everything. If this is true, then everything about you and me, our world, and today is dramatically changed. Is it not? 
If the creator of the universe stepped into his creation to rescue the broken people he's made that he might restore them, does that not change everything? Can I give you four? Four things that it changes. First, it changes your suffering. You can now have joy in suffering. Anybody feel lonely, rejected? So was he. In pain, facing difficult circumstance? So was he. Tempted? So was he. When somebody who's been through great suffering comes alongside you and says, I can tell you can make it, it changes how we experience it. You can have joy. Notice, I'm not saying happiness. This sort of um, flighty, shallow thing based entirely on circumstance, no. But deep, abiding joy, even the greatest trial, the incarnation offers you and me that. Number two, you can have joy in your skepticism. By the way, they're all gonna start with S. Get excited. Uh, You can have joy in your skepticism. You got doubts? Questions? Things as you read the Bible that you go, I don't get that. Welcome. It's a good place, I hope, to have those doubts. And as you wrestle with them, and I, ho- and I hope that you would, I invite you to, as you wrestle with those doubts, whether you're a Jesus follower in the room, maybe you're not, as you wrestle with them, what John will tell us just a few verses later is this. And I need you to, I need you to go here with me. John will say, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. I've got doubts. I've got things that are off-putting to me when I read the Bible. I've got things I don't understand. Most of this room does too. In your doubt, in your questions, in your wrestling, do all of that in the face of Jesus. If you want to know who God, the God of the Bible is, see Jesus. That's what John's saying. Take your questions. Wrestle deeply with them but take them ultimately to the nature and character of Jesus. He shows you who our God is. And I invite you to do that with me as well. Number three, joy in serving. We can have a abiding joy in serving. Just a few pages after this, a few turns of the scroll in John's gospel. He's gonna take off this, his robes and his outer garments, put on the towel of a slave and bend down and begin washing his disciples' feet. He's willing to look the broken the dirty, the other in the eye and show them dignity and respect. It's an amazing picture of service. J.I. Packer summarizes it. I think it's so, so good. He says, for the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice and misunderstanding. And finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely men and for unlovely women. You can have joy even in serving. And lastly, joy in singing. Joy in singing. When Mary hears the announcement that her, her child will be the one who will rescue her people and bless the world, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. How do you know that the implications of the incarnation are true to you? It melts your heart, and you want to sing in gratitude. Maybe you can't sing very well. You want to extol the Lord in gratitude. So as we close, can I just ask you, ask me, asking myself this, I get it. Christmas, sometimes it can just be numbing. It starts early. There's all the commercialism of it, the Christmas parties at work, the travel you got to figure out, the the presents you got to figure out, the family you got to figure out. Then you got like Mariah Carey and Beyonce singing songs about Jesus on the radio or in Walmart, and you're like, this whole thing, I just kind of want it. I don't get how it can be so numbing and familiar that we can go through the motions of Christmas. Can I invite you, if you haven't yet this Christmas season, this Advent season, to reflect on the incarnation of Jesus, to soak it in, to think about it, to sing about it, to wrestle deeply with it. If you haven't yet this Christmas season, I invite you to do it even as we're about to turn and sing. Carve out time this week to do so. 
Let us not miss the wonder, the joy of the incarnation this year. Don't miss it. Think of these words. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, powerful, but late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. The theology, and this is unbelievable, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our God with us, Emmanuel, so we sing. So church family, would you stand with me? And I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna sing. Tell of the wonder of our King coming into this world. Jesus, at great cost of yourself, you became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's how far you were willing to go to put right the brokenness in my life and in our world. And with joy, we turn now to sing because you're the only one worthy of it. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your name as our King. Amen. Let's sing. Grace is remarkable. Mercies are innumerable. Strength is impenetrable. He is honorable, accountable, favorable. He's unsearchable, yet knowable. Indefinable, yet approachable. Indescribable, yet personal. He is beyond comprehension. Further than imagination. Constant through generation. King 
of every nation. But if there are words for him, then I don't have them. You see, my words are few to try and capture the one true God. Using my vocabulary will never do. But I use words as an expression, an expression of worship to a savior, a savior who's both worthy and deserving of my praise. So I use words. My heart extols the Lord, blesses his name forever. He has won my heart, captured my mind and bound them both together. He's defeated me in my rebellion, conquered me in my sin. He welcomed me into his presence, completely invited me in. And he's made himself the object of my sight, flooding me with mercies in the morning and drowning me with grace in the night. So if there are words for him, then I don't have them. But what I do have is good news. For my God knew that man-made words would never do. For words are just tools that we use to point to the truth. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the word, living proof. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, giving nothingness formation. And by his word he sustains in the power of his name, for he is before all things and above all things he reigns. Holy is his name. So praise him for his life, the way he persevered in strife the humble Son of God becoming the perfect sacrifice. Praise Him in His death, that He willingly stood in our place, that He lovingly endured the grave, that He paddles our enemy and on the third day rose in victory. He is everything that was promised. Praise Him as the risen King. Lift your voice and sing, for one day He will return for us and we will finally be united with our Savior for eternity. Eternity! So it's not just words I proclaim. For my words pointed the word, and the word has a name. Hope has a name. Peace has a name. Joy has a name. Love has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ. Praise his name forever. have to do with joy everything we live lives of expressions of joy because our king has come not like the world expected but what we desperately need that's what we celebrate this time of the year we remind us so don't miss it don't miss it if you need prayer right through those doors we'd love to pray with you uh, we'll have some of our staff here in the front we'd love to pray with you fellowship Fayetteville have a wonderful week of worship. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.